worship the Lord. I'm continuing on what I preached about last week and I'm giving you my last point. So last week we spoke about worship and introduced it as an attitude and as a way of life. And I'm going to finish that foundation and then the other preachers are going to come in and add to the subject and flesh out the subject on what worship is. And as I've mentioned to you, worship is critical. Worship is crucial, especially in the days ahead where the enemy is rising, the darkness is coming. Being a true worshiper and being someone that is faithful to the covenant is crucial. And we'll be teaching you all about that when we do the end time teaching after the, after, near the end of the year. But let me get to my last point uh, concerning worship. Now, thanksgiving, praise, worship relate to three attributes or characteristics of the nature of God. When I give thanks, I'm thanking God for his goodness. When I praise God, I'm praising God for his greatness. But when I worship God, I'm actually worshiping and relating to his holiness. Now, essentially, when you worship, you have to ask yourself the question, who or what am I worshiping? Because that's what worship is. We worship someone or we worship something. And the Christian worship revolves around God's holiness. Now, regarding holiness, there's very little on the earth, in culture, in society, that I can take, put it up on the screen or talk about and show you that, that, that will give you an idea of what holiness is. In actual fact, in my point, from my perspective, in my point of view, I do not believe that there is nothing on this planet that is holy. There is nothing in the second heaven in my book that is holy. And except for God himself, I believe that there is nothing in heaven that is holy except for God himself. That's my understanding. So for us to understand the, the God's holiness, for my understanding of God's holiness, for me, it's, it's limited to awe. It's limited to reverence and it's limited to fear. And that's the only way I can really connect from my perspective with holiness because there is nothing around me that I can attribute it to or I can relate to. Because there's no parallel on earth except God himself. There is no parallel to show you what holiness is. I can relate to goodness and I can show you good things. And you can say, yes, that's a good thing. I can relate and give thanks because that's a good thing. I can show you great things on the, on, on the earth. And you, can look, and you can look at it and say, yes, that is a great thing. And you can praise that because it's great. But regarding holiness, there's nothing. I can point to nothing except point to God. Because outside of God, there is nothing that is holy. Holiness is God. And worship relates to God's holiness. I want, I want you to understand, there's a couple of important, crucial points that you need to take out and you need to put in the back of your head, especially as we go out through the series. Now, here's one of them. The one thing that Satan wants and it's not his, is worship. He will give you the earth. 
And there are many people who have literally sold their souls to the devil for riches, for wealth, for acclaim, for fame, for whatever they want. They've sold their souls to, to Satan for power. And he demands one thing back from them, and that is worship. He tried it with Jesus. Matthew chapter four, verse nine. All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now notice what Jesus responds with. He says, get away from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What was I saying last week? Worship and service. Why are we here? To worship God and serve God. End of the story. So Satan comes along and says to Jesus, I will give you everything you want as long as you worship me. And Jesus says, not gonna happen because worship only belongs to God. You can only worship God. In the 10 commandments, we see how important worship is. And I'm gonna read to you out of Deuteronomy chapter five, verse one to 10, where, where Moses is talking to the children of Israel. And this is, this is what he is saying. So he's, he's giving them the, 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 the story of where they were with regards to the mountain of God. And I'll start at verse five. The Lord, at that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you, to, to you the word of the Lord. Because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. Now it's very interesting if you flick to the New Testament and go to the book of Romans chapter one and you see the truth exchange taking place. Now I've spoken quite extensively over the last couple of months concerning the truth exchange. And so here we see people doing exactly what God warned them in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament not to do. In verse 20 of Romans chapter one, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood for what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies for one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Worship is the one thing in all of creation that God does not share. It's his and it's his alone. Now, I shared with you last week and I gave you a warning and I said to you, worship is an attitude and worship is a lifestyle. As a Christian, you cannot 
separate your life and say, I'm only gonna worship God there because your whole life, everything you do, everything you say, everything you are is and should be an act of worship. Okay? And I said to you that you, if you wanna be a worshiper, worship is an attitude. Okay? It's a, it's, a, it's a condition that you need to be in at all times. It's a commitment that you need to be having before God. And I said to you, what you worship will be your master. We are created to worship. You can say, no, I'm not being created to worship. That's fine. Whatever is primary in your life, that's what's worshiping you and that's what's controlling you, whether you acknowledge it or not. You can worship the bottle, alcohol, it will be your master. You can worship your body, allow your body to control you through the, your, your senses, your, your desires, that will worship you. It will master you, it will control you. The more you worship something, the more it will control you. The more you worship God, the more he will control you. The more he will guide you, the more he will direct you, the more in freedom he will release you. The less you worship God, the more in rebellion you walk, and then you walk into that Romans chapter one situation where you begin to exchange truth for lie. And so as a worshiper, because it's a lifestyle and an attitude, whatever you're exchanging, Whatever little stronghold you keep in, that now starts to dictate how you live and how you relate to people. Worship and the worship of God, we worship him because he is holy. Now here's something that you really need to understand. I shared with you the first important point which was the one thing Satan wants is to be worshiped. This is the second important thing that you need to really gain an understanding of. And, it, and it's the key to unlocking a lifestyle of worship. When you come in contact with God, your automatic response will be that of becoming a worshiper. Think about that. It's so easy for me to discern when someone is actually really having an encounter with God and when someone is not really having an encounter with God. Because the minute someone has an encounter with God, a revelation of who he is gets given to that person. And because of that revelation, that person automatically becomes a worshiper. He can't not be a worshiper when he sees who God is. So a revelation of the holiness of God gets given and the only response that can, give, can be given back is just to fall flat and say, Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. Without a revelation, you cannot worship. You can have a song service. And that's why some of these churches, 
They're preaching a false gospel. They're preaching a false Jesus. They're preaching agnostic Jesus. I've shared that with you in the deception series. That's why they can open their church services with an anthem to Satan. Hail Satan, they say. And they think, well, because we're gonna do that, we're gonna make people feel more comfortable and, and accept God all the more. Give me a break. You know, <laughs> give me a break. I'm a simple man, but I'm not a simpleton. You can have a worship, you can have a song service, you can call it a worship service, you can call it whatever you want, but unless there is a revelation of who God is, it's not worship. The holiness of God cannot be explained, it cannot be defined, it can only be revealed. Now that is important for you to understand. For you to be a worshiper, you need to be connecting with God and you need to be having a revelation of God. That's important for you to understand because for many, many Christians, their understanding of holiness is a set of rules. All right, I have to have so many rules in my life and if I'm obeying all these rules in my life, that means I'm holy. No, means you're a Pharisee. So there are rules on where to go. There are rules on what to say. There are rules on how to dress. There are rules on how to cut your hair. There are rules on what to eat, when to eat, how to eat. And there are rules on how to speak. And all of these rules the more rules we get, the more we whip our bodies, the more we contort ourselves with these rules and with these regulations, the more we think we are now holy. Paul says the opposite. Listen to this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world... Why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are, merely based, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Wow. Look at verse 23 again. From such regulations. Just, just, just think about this here. This is so profoundly true. These people come with this appearance of wisdom, this appearance of spirituality, and they come and impose all these things upon us. Self-imposed worship. This is how you do it, this is what you gotta do, and if you don't do it this way, this way, or this way, you are not holy, you are not a worshiper. False humility. You know that pious spirituality, that look, you know, the head tilted just to the little side, just that angelic little tilt to the mouth, the eyes gotta be like half closed, because that, that's that, You've seen into the spirit realm. Mm. 
Just get a slap to the head. That's all you need. I'll show you worship. And, and, and then they go, all this treatment of the body. And Paul says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You are dead to all of that. The, have, you, have you found this to be so, all right? You come to church and you get convicted of, of something in your life, you know, a little, little stronghold and stuff like that. Because we're all in the process of maturing. We're all in the process of this, we're all in the sanctification process and something pings you. And on Monday morning, you, you write it on your mirror, you write it in your Bible, you write it on your phone, you, you, you've written it everywhere. You've virtually tattooed it on the top of it. I must not lose my temper. I must not lose my temper. I must not, I must not lose my temper. And you've gone, boom, it's gone already. Have you, do you find that? I find I can't do that, I can't do that, can't look at that, can't, can't do that, can't do that, bang, and I'm gone. Why is that? I am more, I'm focusing on it. I'm focusing on it. Rules and regulations, can't do it, can't do it, can't do it, and I end up doing it. No wonder so many people get turned off holiness and understanding holiness and the process of sanctification in the church. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 talks about the discipline of parents and the discipline of God. Now look at what the discipline of God does. Verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while as though they thought best. That's talking about our human parents. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Wow, what are we gonna share in? What is his holiness? Who he is. That's what you're sharing, that's holiness. Holiness is who God is. Holiness is the essence of what God is. Everything about God is holy. So what I'm gonna do now to lay a foundation is go through a couple of attributes with a few comments here and there, and then I'm gonna wrap up the sermon. So the first attribute I'm gonna be talking about is God is light. 1 John 1, 5. You wanna know what holiness is? God is light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He not only creates light, he not only sends light, he is light. Now try and get your little human brain around that. God is love. Another attribute. You're gonna notice as we go into the attributes that there's certain elements within the church that have been slowly but surely um, evangelized by the Gnostic, not Gnostic, by the, by the Babylonian church. They, they will love certain attributes of God, but there's certain attributes we're gonna to touch on that they're not gonna like. This is one they love, God is love. Oh, they love this one. God is love. Love, love, love is all there is, you know, love hashtag. Anyway, God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. This is the real love here. Whatever, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has, set, has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So God is both light and love. Interesting. I was thinking about this. 
There is a tension between light and love. Now just imagine we're scrabbling around in the dark and suddenly a bright light comes on. What is the first thing we do? You know? So light, light would repel us. The more we come into the light of God, the more we actually see the filthy rags that we actually wear and we, we, we say, Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus because it's the best cleansing agent in the universe. Just clean me from all of this. But the love of God, so the light of God sort of will repel, but the love of God will draw us into the light with the remedy for our justification and our sanctification. Isn't that fantastic? All right? So God is light. God is love. God is justice and judgment. This is actually part of God's nature. Okay? Now, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 to 4, Moses says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Many people accuse God of injustice. Um, I can think of the postmodernists cannot stand God because, and they accuse him of injustice because they say if you, if you as his children hold to an absolute thought, then you are going to prosecute somebody else. You're going you're gonna, to you, you deprive somebody else of something. And they hate God. And they hate the fact that God is a God of justice and judgment. Many people in the church don't actually relate to God in this way either. And many people accuse God of injustice, especially where it comes to their particular circumstances or situations that they might find themselves in because they've blown it or they have been disciplined by the Lord. But the Bible tells me that there is no injustice in God. He is totally just, and he is a God of truth. When, 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 when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, can you imagine a man standing in front of God and saying, God, what are you actually doing here? Are you going to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? And he had a, he had a little bit of a debate with God concerning that matter. Genesis 18, 25, far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous with the wicked alike, far be it for you. Will you not judge, of, will, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That is who God is. He is a God who is gonna judge all the earth. Put it in your head. One day, I am going to stand before this God and I am going to be judged by this God. Just me alone. And either I'm going to have Jesus next to me, or I'm going to be standing alone. Do not find yourself on the white throne judgment. But God is going to judge all the earth. And he is going to judge the earth in truth. He will judge it correctly. Nothing will be hidden from him. There is no injustice. There is no iniquity within him. We are often tempted to believe that God is unjust, but scripture declares emphatically that this couldn't be further from the truth. 
So God is a God of justice and judgment. Now here's one people don't like. God is a God of anger and wrath. Think about that. God is a God of anger and wrath. So the, so the contemporary Christian, the emergent Christian, the Christian that has slowly been influenced by Babylon really does not like this. And, and, and they've got this, I don't know whether it's an amnesia or this deliberate, this is not the God that we serve, but the Bible clearly shows us that God, one of his attributes, one, one of the, one, this is who God is. God is a God of anger and a God is a God of wrath. Nahum gives us a brilliant picture of this. Nahum chapter one, verse two, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now, now this, is, this is in the face of all of those guys that really promote universalism and love wins all and, you know, hashtag love and don't worry, you know, God's gonna forgive you no matter what you've done. You might have killed millions and billions of people or you might have done this. And, but anyway, we'll all get to heaven one day and sing Kumbaya. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Fear of God, worship of God, this is a good thing to get you on your face. The Lord is angry. The Lord is furious. And the Lord avenges himself. This is part of God's divine nature. This is part of God's eternal nature. If you leave, if you leave this part out, the God you're teaching is not the God of the Bible. It's agnostic God, a false God. This is a phenomenal scripture. I was talking to some of the boys earlier on and I said, did you know, did you know that this would happen in front of Jesus? And like, they were like, hmm? Here's the scripture. Just, just, just see if you can pick out what I'm pointing at. Unless it's underlined already, then I've given it away on the slide. Revelation chapter 14, verse nine to 11. Ah, it's underlined. <laughs> How is that underlined in there? Just, just think about that. Think about that. For, for those on the podcast, this is what it says. I've underlined the last part of verse 10. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. The antichrist, the false prophet, all the people that are marked with the mark of the beast and that whole lot of angels that followed the devil, all right? Now, verse nine, a, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image, now remember, the Babylonian church is gonna get the world to worship the beast. The Babylonian church, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, is gonna say, this is the Christ. And then they're gonna get the whole world to get the mark of the beast. So if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their right hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured forth, 
which, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with, sulfur, burn, with, with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. So for all the kumbaya people out there who believe the love, love, hashtag love gospel and universalism and Jesus is gonna sort everything out, well, in his presence, these people will be tortured. Now you tell me how I must try and reinterpret that other than how I've just given it to you. I can't, for the life of me. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb forever and ever. Not exactly the contemporary picture the Gnostic church, the Babylonian church wants to preach and teach about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is your God. When you see this, your response will be true worship. Because that's when you're gonna fall on your face and say, oh my God. Some believe that God is far too um, merciful to ever do this. This, this punishment can't happen. This is, this is sort of, it's in the scripture I know, but well, God is a God of love, hashtag. All right? But this is what John says about what God gave him in Revelation 22, verse 18 to 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to this person the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this prophecy, the scroll of the prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in the scroll. If anything is clearly written in the book of Revelation. It's that, it's, it's that there is an eternal judgment. So we are reaching a stage in society now where the people of the world, because of their own sin and iniquity, are becoming more kinder and forgiving, forgiving is the wrong word, more kinder and, and, and accepting of criminals than of victims. Why? Well, we don't want to be judgmental. I don't think so. I think it's because if you begin to judge these people, then you will surely know that judgment is coming on you as well. So God is a God of anger and a God of wrath. God is also a God of mercy and loving kindness. This is beautiful. The word in scripture that is translated loving kindness is steadfast love. 
Just think about that. God is a God of steadfast love. So the more you study this word, the more you've got to come to the conclusion, and this is what I've come to when I, when I study this word, is, that, is, is this. God is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. So when I, when I see God as merciful, God is faithful in keeping his covenant to me. When I see kindness, God is faithful in keeping his covenant to me. That's why I said earlier on, pay attention to your covenant with God. And I'll be talking about that when I deal with the end times. It is God's faithfulness to his covenant that is one of his greatest attributes. Psalm 51. David comes before God. The king had just committed adultery and murder. Covered it up. God sent a prophet. Boom. Exposed him. David has a dilemma. What does he do? Psalm 51 verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. According to your loving kindness is the reference of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. And so David was basically saying to God, you have committed yourself to forgive me if I meet the conditions. And I'm appealing to you on the basis of the conditions you've laid out. Therefore, I repent. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. I'm appealing to you on that basis. How important is it now, and this is, I'm setting you up now to go into the series. How important then is it to understand the various protocols you need to have and know as you approach this holy God? How do you approach this holy God with a stain of sin on your heart? How do you approach this holy God when you wanna come into his presence? Psalm 106 verse one, I mean, Psalm is just full of, the, the Psalms are full of this. Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. So God is merciful and God is a God of loving kindness. Two more and then I'm gonna wrap it up. God is a God of grace. This is probably one of the most misused attributes that are gonna cost people dearly in judgment is grace. They don't understand grace. In Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, we read, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How do we approach the throne of grace with confidence? Protocols. What are the protocols? There are two things you need to understand about this verse of scripture. And this is what drives people who are very, very self-centered crazy. Because the world wants to make their own way to God. Because they wanna have a self-centered religion. I wanna do whatever I want, but I also wanna get to God. And there are two things that you cannot earn 
out of this verse of scripture. And one is mercy, you can't earn mercy. And the other one is grace. You cannot earn grace. First, to approach the throne, you need mercy. Then, you need grace. And it cannot be earned. So religious people have a problem because they think they have to earn everything. If I do this, then that'll happen. If I do that, then this must happen. Not so, you cannot earn mercy, you cannot earn grace. So consequently, these people tend to turn down the grace of God, twist, it, twist the doctrine of the grace of God, and really end up in a very, very dangerous place with regards to God coming and judging them. Remember, we will all be judged. Are you gonna get judged with Jesus standing next to you as your advocate, or are you gonna get judged alone? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. We need mercy to deal with the past. We need grace to deal with the future. And it's only God's grace that we can become the kind of people that he wants us to become, disciples, followers of Jesus, people that are like his son, Jesus, people that he requires. The last one is God is a God of power. The whole Bible is full of the demonstrations of God's power. I mean, you just, you just have to read the Psalms. I've got one here, Psalm 93, verse one to four. I'm not gonna read it. You can go home and study it and you can go and see that God is a God of power. Let me begin wrapping up the sermon. Holiness, now just think about this. Holiness is about God, who God is. When you worship, you are worshiping God. This is the God that you are worshiping. So you're worshiping a God who is light. You're worshiping a God who is love. You're worshiping a God who is justice and judgment. You're worshiping a God who is anger and wrath. You're worshiping a God who is mercy and loving kindness, grace and power. I believe, my personal belief, is that God is all of that. Holiness is all of that. It is the total being of God. And, and, and it's incredible, you see two parallel verses of scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament that describe worship. And it's the only verses I can find where, where the word holy is given three times in a sentence to God. Maybe it's to do with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I don't know. Isaiah 6, one to four, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, Above him were the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two wings they covered their face. With two wings they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voice, the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. The minute someone faces God, the minute someone sees God, the minute someone has a revelation of God, the automatic response is that of worship. Fall down, holy, holy, holy. Revelation chapter four, verse eight, throne room scene. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and, were covered, and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, 
holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. The minute you get a revelation of God, your automatic response will be that of worship. And that is why worship then becomes an attitude and then it becomes a way of life. And it's the only way of life that you need to survive the onslaught of the devil. There is no revelation of holiness. There can be no worship. You can have a nice song. You can have a nice song service. You can have a praise and worship. You can have thanksgiving. You can... You can spice up your stage. You can have the smoke machines going. Whatever you want. If there's no revelation of God, there is no worship. For when we know the holiness of God in any measure whatsoever, the appropriate response will then be that of worship. As we enter into the series, the different preachers are gonna be preaching on different topics and they're gonna be taking us through character, they're gonna be taking us through protocols, they're gonna be showing us what a worship is, how worship is done. But I'm gonna end off by quoting Psalm 100 verse four. And this gives you a protocol of progressing into the presence of God. So you enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and give thanks to him and praise his name. Many, many people then stay there. They stay in the court. But there's another place beyond the court, and that is where the, the throne room of God is. That's where God is, the Holy of Holies. So you've got a picture the temple in the Old Testament. They walk through the gates, and they begin to thank God. Thank you, God, for what you've done for us. Thank you, God, that our sins are taken away. Thank you, God, that I'm here, I'm alive. Thank you, God, for my family. Thank, and, and, and I enter with thanksgiving for all the benefits and benevolence that God has shown me. And then I walk past, if I was in the temple in the desert, I would walk past the lava, then I would walk past the brazen altar, and then I would enter, was the other way around, and then I would enter into his courts, and I would begin to praise God. Now, thanksgiving, this is what you've done for me. All right? Now when I enter the next stage, I praise you. Now it becomes, I'm praising you. Most Christians stay there. Because to many Christians, they don't have a revelation of who God is. But the minute you enter into the Holy of Holies, you then go down and worship Him because he is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So through the series, I want you to really begin to push in to become worshipers and learn from this, practice this, get, get this into your spirit because this is gonna be crucial for you to unlock and, help, and, and, and it's gonna be crucial helping you unlock the teaching I'm gonna be giving you at the end of the year regarding end times. But focus on, on this, get to know the subject and become a worshiper. Become someone who pays attention to the covenant between them and God. Remember the communion table? Pay attention to that. Attitude, 
lifestyle, holiness. Let me pray for you. Father, I just pray for each one that's listening to the sermon. I pray, Lord, that you will just touch each one, Lord, and give them a revelation of who you are so that they can become worshipers in spirit and in truth. Because without a revelation from you given to us by you, we cannot worship. And we want to become worshipers of the Most High God. We want to bow down with creation and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And we want to dedicate our lives as a living sacrifice of worship that is our acceptable service to you. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We commit our ways to you. And we avail ourselves to you, Lord, as we walk out of your presence to be of service to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.